in a constantly changing world. Today is as simple as it gets. You're listening to The Leadership Enigma, a podcast to explore, experiment, and power up your leadership to make the difference to your business, your people, and your success. Whether you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or corporate executive, each week we dig deep into global experts, academics, rising stars, ambitious upstarts, and disruptors. Now, here's your host, Adam Pacifico. So welcome to another episode of The Leadership Enigma. And I'm extremely excited to have friend and colleague Tremaine Dupreeze on this particular episode. So I'll just quickly say, hi Tremaine, how are you? Thank you, Adam. It is awesome to be here. I am extremely well. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. And the episode title for today is Challenge the Status Quo. Now, Tremaine has lived and worked in Asia, Africa, Europe, coaching and delivering many wonderful lectures in relation to leadership, a specific focus in decision science and critical thinking. I think that's right, Tremaine. You'll uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, And also the founder of Decide, author of multiple books, and your latest book is Decide as well. And you're also the host of a YouTube channel, Decide. So welcome to the Leadership Enigma. Thank you, Adam. Yes, it is a little bit of a theme in the work that I do, decision making. I'm definitely seeing a theme. So help us understand, challenge the status quo. Now, that's quite dear to your heart, especially in the current climate. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think as the world has gone through various different transformations, every time there has been a crisis, the bursting of the tech bubble, the housing bubble, uh, many people will remember Lehman Brothers. Yeah. We have taken a step back, even if it's momentary or briefly, we've taken a step back and we said, well, what do we need to do differently going forward? Some, some of the lessons we've learned in the past have been that we need to rehumanize decision making. So it isn't all about the facts and the figures, about the numbers, about making profits, but it's also, also about best practice in terms of bringing ourselves into the decision. And a lot of the, the issues we've had with financial crises has been when we've taken human oversight away from the decision making. So bringing behavioral economics in, bringing the human side and understanding the human influence on decision making has been very, very important in terms of moving decision making forward. And uh, many popular books, you know, uh, Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow is, is probably a seminal work in the area where we, we, we look at how we as human beings influence it. Because at the end of the day, we pull the trigger on decisions, not the facts, it's not the figures. And yet we spend very little time thinking about the influence that we have on our choices. So that is changing and we're doing more and more of it. In the current situation, I think there has been an, an even deeper revolution in decision making because it's happening at such speed and it's not happening out there in the financial markets. And we're not spectators looking at the financial markets collapse and waiting for the impact. In fact, we're all rolling up our sleeves and we're getting involved. And the way decisions are being made is changing. And we are doing this wonderful pivoting thing that everybody is talking about. So I think there is a lot happening on the ground around the world in terms of decision making. And this to me is quite exciting. So Trevane, let me ask you a question. Are you seeing a difference between the financial crash of 2008 and what is happening now during a global pandemic? Yes, it was quite easy to sit back and say it's them. Right. Somebody else has done this. I'm, I'm a victim. Most people were, were victims of that. 
Uh, some people got off and, and some people were blamed. Some people got off scot-free. Um, and uh, there was a lot more structure built around uh, regulations in financial systems. Risk systems came in. And we, we kind of felt like, okay, regulators have done their thing. Tick. Uh, and we can all move on. But now we're actually sitting back and going, well, this is environmental. It's health. It affects every one of us. Many people have lost loved ones. It affects us at a, a deeply personal level. All so I think... In it's some ways, all, encompassing. All, enco- all encompassing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I, th- I think the changes that come from this will, well, I, and I certainly hope, will be more long-lived, and will be a, a more natural evolution of our thinking than something that's imposed upon us by risk systems and structure. So, Tremaine, what are some of the changes that you expect or hope to see as a result of this shared experience of a global pandemic? Well, I think there's hope in in several different areas and aspects. And if we start sort of at the macro level with government decision making, uh, we're seeing how, you know, there's there's quite a bit of talk of how female leaders and and female heads of states have seemed, or the perception is that they have done better. Yes, I uh, saw that. In the response to the crisis, uh, whereas, you know, the more male dominated, um, more linear teams that are running some of the other bigger bigger economies. But if you dig a little deeper and you think about what is it about those economies that have allowed those women to rise to the top? And it's because there are more inclusive economies that value diversity of thought and opinion. So it's not necessarily the women per se. There are some remarkable women there, but it's not them per se because they are surrounded by a team of advisors. But they are representing a culture where diversity of thought and actually truly listening to different opinions is valued. And I think so this is a fantastic example of where we really hope change will come through. And if that can filter down into corporations as a very, very practical uh, benefit that is happening, then I think decision making around the world will be better off. And then another thing I think we're seeing very strongly, certainly in the organizations I'm working with, is that as people spread out in this new digital way of working, we find that traditional centralized decision making is being challenged. Because we still want to work at speed, but we don't have the usual line of sight to our staff, to our decision makers, to our leadership teams. We're actually having to trust people to make choices on their own and with limited amount of resources. So the way we distribute decision rights is changing. I'm not sure leadership teams always understand what that means when we want to distribute decision rights uh, down further down the line. Um, it does mean giving somebody the resources and the authority to make those decisions in that we need to coach decision makers. Mm-hmm. Decision coaching is something that's becoming much more popular. So we empower them to make decisions, which, of course, increases speed and agility in the organization. But for some very traditional leaders, it's quite hard to give up those decision rights. Uh, but we, we need to really think about what it means to assign responsibility along with it and how we can actually grow organizations in that way. They're really going to have and, to start trusting people, aren't they? Yes, yes. Which is harder if we're not having shared experiences. Right. Right? So how do we start building that in distributed decision-making? And one, one way of doing this, and it's, it's somewhat counterintuitive, is that what we're seeing now is that instead of that, I, I trust Adam because I've worked with him before, I, I know he's a good guy, I know he's got my back, and, and I know the way he does things. And I haven't paid you to say that, just so we... Just <laughs> yeah, but I'm still going to bill you for it. <laughs> Not yet. But so what, what we're finding now is because that subjectivity in terms of trust is, is fading away, 
we might be working. I'm often at the moment working with new people that I don't know. And I'm thinking, well, oh, hang on. What, how much can I expect from this person? But data is actually becoming more important, which is almost counterintuitive because we are relying more. And as we make quicker decisions, we're actually relying more on sharing data between an organization. So whereas a leadership team might have held on to certain amounts of data, yes. it's actually more important that they can distribute that now to their teams to put everybody on the same page. We need to be in a position to create shared mental models. If we all understand the problem domain correctly, then there's less risk in that we're going to take an incorrect decision or execute it incorrectly. And in order to create shared mental models, we need to be able to share the data, share the assumptions and have really robust discussions about them. Yeah, so my question was about the balance between the amount and the speed at which one can share data. And something you mentioned which really resonates with me, the humanistic side of decision making. Is there a balance there to be made or is there a challenge in getting that balance right yes of course there are many many different types of decisions but if we just take the most the most general type of decision that we'd be making in which we have to take in information generate choices and decide between those choices um there is very much a balance between how much data we can absorb and there used to be a, a thought that the more data we have the better our decision will be. And of course, data is the foundation of good decision-making. If you have rubbish data, you, you're not going to get a good decision out of it. Okay. But there's there's some research done by McKinsey uh, not too long ago, I think 2017, I think, where they actually looked at what improves return to investment on decision-making in an organization. Okay. They expected that good quality data would be the foundation of it. But they found that only 7% of excess returns to two big decisions, they looked at investments, came from the quality of the data. Right. Right. So it was a very, very small, the rest of it, the, the, there was, there was, I think 30% came down to 33% came down to idiosyncratic factors, like being in the right place at the right time, having enough capital. So the things that really make something successful, but the, the majority of the return, excess return to investment came from having a sound decision-making process. Right. So how we actually took those opportunities and the data and how we exploited it to our advantage, how we challenged each other, how we included voices in the room. So data is data is cheap and easy to obtain now. Our, our forefathers had to invest a lot in gathering good quality data. But for most organizations today, they have too much data. So invest, investing instead in the systems that actually make sense of that data is more important. And we also know from the behavioral economics research that there is, there is a, a bell curve in terms of data. And we get to a point where, now I know I'm using my hands and the listeners won't be able to see this, but just to imagine this bell curve. Okay, we're all imagining a bell curve. <laughs> exactly. And you get, get to the top of the bell curve. Now that is the point. So you've got data on, on your y-axis and you've got time on your x-axis and you get to this point this top of the bell curve where at that point gathering more data over time actually decreases quality of decision making because what happens is when you get past this point your confidence increases so you think well I have more data than everybody else I am more confident in my decision than anybody else and actually the quality of decision making deteriorates as confidence in in it increases it's a false confidence it comes from having data we get to a point where we cannot assimilate any more data and there's a never-ending supply of data as well you could just keep going drink from the fire hose right 
Exactly, exactly. Eventually you'll just drown. Uh, and it doesn't always improve your decision making. So data filtering and sorting and actually disseminating enough information to create those shared mental models, if we come back to that, is very important. And keeping people abreast of changes in information. So if we all understand the base case, what's changed overnight, what's changed this week. So resetting every morning, bringing, leveling up the playing field in terms of information and knowledge every day is very important. So it sounds like one of the critical ingredients or the critical ingredient is the process itself. It is the critical ingredient. Is it a solid? And in fact, that is what my PhD thesis was on, was actually building. We, I knew we'd get there eventually. Uh, but building behavioral decision-making processes and the values that they bring. Okay, so this is a really tough question I'm going to ask you now because you know, I'm hoping the listeners were made up from a vast array of leaders, whether that's you know, the 19-year-old in the garage with a great startup idea to a leader, owner of an SME through to executive leaders of large multinationals. What advice would you have in relation to them thinking about the process of decision-making that they would like to adopt in the next normal? Oh, how much time do we have, Adam? (laughs) (laughs) At high level, because I'm going to invite you back. We're going to get you back in and we're going to have another conversation in a few weeks' time as well. You have indeed, but you know what? I I, I have a hundred and eighty-page thesis covering this, so I'll, okay, I'll give you then, the summary. Then buckle I'll give up, you the everyone. Sh- Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, importantly, what what you're needing is to understand how you make decisions or your team, right? Because that, that and that's possibly one of the most important pieces of advice is if you impose a system or protocols on decision makers when they're under pressure like we all pretty much are right now, they're going to revert back to the way they do things. Revert to type. Revert to type. That's it. All right. But if you already understand how you make decisions, you can then build in protocols into your own decision-making process. You can build in debiasing strategies. I mean, we have 220 biases. Who on earth is going to tick off all of those? And those are just the ones that have been you know, documented and peer-reviewed. Nobody's going to go. 220. You can Google them. Um, we're not going to go through all of those. So we want these, these big bucket ideas that allow us to debias our thinking as quickly as possible and to check ourselves. So firstly, understand how you make decisions. And it's as simple as saying, well, our last team decision, uh, how did we do it? How did I make the last tough choice that I had? Um, and then thinking, all right, what, perhaps what was missing? And then discovering some decision protocols. Decision protocols are things like, are we making sure we're solving the right problem? and not a symptom of another problem. This is very important. Okay, give me an example. So an example of that would be, um, ah, we had a, a shared FMCG client that, that we worked on together. Okay. And when it came to the decision-making piece, they were convinced that the problem that they were solving was their environmental impact. That consumers were looking to them to improve sustainability in their organization. And, right. and whilst this was absolutely pivotal, we got 500 of their leaders together to talk about this. And they realized through these conversations that they were already doing more than almost any other company in their sector to address this. Well. Yes. yes. And yet it wasn't enough. So as we got these leaders together to discuss what they were thinking around it, what they were hearing from the market, looking at competitors, looking at related industries, they started to realize that perhaps the bigger challenge that they should be addressing in addition to this, this was a symptom of the bigger challenge, was changing consumer preferences. Right. 
And in fact, if they didn't address that, they wouldn't be around in 10 years' time to clean up the mess they were making. And this was a very, very important realization of actually solving the right problem, especially when it comes to strategic and organizational decision-making. We need to be working towards the same challenge. Nice so example. Th Thank you. Yeah, that, that, that's very important. And, and other things that you can build in, like asking yourself, how am I framing the issue? Um, is it from a point of view of prof profitability or stakeholder value creation? Is it from my department in sales or am I looking at it from a competitor's point of view? So how are we framing it? And, and through that frame, how, what are we excluding? Um, we need to challenge assumptions and, and that's being part of this revolution in decision making at the moment. How things that we had assumed were simply ways of working that were accepted and never challenged. Many of them have gone out the window. So it's, it's an awesome time for, for leadership teams to sit back and say, well, what have we challenged in the last eight months? And how can we capture some of the ways of doing that? And I'm, I'm, I, I can say with certainty, having spoken to many leadership teams at the moment, that one of the things they are doing is bringing more voices in, bringing younger voices in. Right. Uh, you know, people who, who might have been junior in their tech department suddenly uh, found themselves with, with, a, with a platform to speak. Uh, with a soapbox and and this has been revolutionizing decision making in these teams whether they whether they capture what they're doing at the moment and formalize it in terms of protocols or not is up to them so much more for inclusivity sure. yeah okay for sure for sure okay do, do, do you want me to talk about some more protocols or, or is that for the no, no, so i've got number one how do you make decisions number two decision protocols is there a three well, the other thing, yes, um, and we've spoken about this before, in fact, is that as, as human beings, we're so very action orientated. We, t we tend to ask ourselves, well, what's the problem? Okay, we understand the problem. Now let's go off and devise a solution. And we spend our time and energy working on solutions. Yes. And, and if we truly want to speed up decision making, we need to spend our time and energy actually understanding the problem. So I will always recommend dividing decision-making meetings into first understanding the problem domain and making sure, again, we're actually solving the right problem. Right. That we understand impacts on stakeholders, not just shareholders, but if we actually look at our, our full ecosystem that is impacted by this, and then when we have agreement, when we have that shared mental model, we can then move on with a far greater and deeper understanding of the issue into deriving solutions, which will be much quicker because this time we know we really know what we're doing. And something else to add to that, when it comes to including different voices, it's not only in the understanding the problem or devising the solution, but also when you get to a point where you haven't quite decided, but you've narrowed down your options. This is really, and what makes the difference between a, a novice decision maker or, or somebody who's been lucky, uh, very often, you know, I'm from the world of finance, I saw that a lot, where people really got lucky. Um, but, but somebody who makes the difference between a novice and a really expert decision maker is somebody who's willing to find another voice to challenge their own thinking. Gotcha. And this, as human beings, is really, really hard to do, because when we're challenged, guess which part of the brain actually lights up when we're challenged? Is it... Is it the thinking part or the part that feels threatened? Tell us. Yeah. Well, it's the part that feels threatened. So even if somebody, if anybody disagrees with us about anything, pretty much, um, I know with me, the hair on the back of my neck stands up. I go nice and pink and um, I feel like I need to defend. So you become defensive, right? This right. is normal evolutionary human behavior. People who are really, really successful, certainly investors, they know there's a high probability that they're going to be wrong. 
So they actually go to other people and say, all right, here's my thinking. Where do you think I'm going to be wrong? But they reframe the information that they receive from criticism to data. This is simply data. So we go out and we seek that this is free data. This is valuable data. And this is not stuff you can Google. Where do you think I'm wrong? Charmaine, I've got these three points. Number one, uh, how do you make decisions? Number two was about decision protocols. And number three was not being just action oriented, but actually having almost two schools or two camps within the decision making framework. I'm going to put one in between one and two. So you have a 1.2. Okay. And and that is to make sure you're solving the right challenge. So I'm going to ask you to finish off with, I'm going to ask you some, some questions so we can get to know you a little bit. And my first one is this, what's your hobby? Now that might be hobby at the moment, or it might be a hobby that you've had for many years. I don't know. So it, it's, it's, it's quite common to say, oh, I love to travel. And, and that's my hobby. I do love to travel. You know, I've lived on four continents in, in six cities. I, I love to not just travel, but experience new cultures. But I particularly like going to strange places. Um, we, we're talking about Mongolia, uh, up volcanoes in Indonesia. I really do like adventure travel. It's, you know, now that I'm in, in, in my sort of middle age, it gets harder. But um, it, it's not something I want to give up on in a hurry. And it, it also gets a little more luxurious, which is quite nice as you get older. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, you do you want a hot shower. For a while. <laughs> you do. You won't be on a plane for a while, that's for sure. No, so I'm, I'm hoping I'm hoping I don't have to change my hobby anytime soon. But um, we are still dreaming about what's next and, and we're very much planning. Um, so, yeah. So and apart from writing, I mean, I, I'm an author. I love I love writing, which means I love reading. Um, but that's not a hobby. That is just that is just something I do because I have to. Well, that's a wonderful segue into my next question, because you've been the author of a number of books. The latest one uh, titled Decide. What's your favorite word? It's not a word I've ever written in a book, but it is a word. I, you know, growing up in Africa uh, as an expat, there was a word, saubona, which, saubona. Saubona, okay, I like it. Saubona. What does it mean? And, and it, it, the, the, the translation, how it is used, it's a Zulu word, and it means, well, they use it as hello, but what it really means is I see you. And it's, it's a lovely way of saying hello. It's saying, actually, I, I really see you. I recognize you. And I'm here in your presence. And, and we're going to have this moment together, which I think is just awesome. I think I quite like that as almost a leadership concept. So that, that's marvelous. And my third question is, what would be your best advice to a 21-year-old Tremaine? So my answer to that would come from a book I read probably when I was in my early 20s called Stumbling on Happiness. And in it, the author talks about how we certainly people who are very, very driven, how we constantly invest today to make our future self better off. And very often we get so caught up in living for tomorrow that we actually forget that happiness is created in the moment. Yes. Happiness is a choice. Everything comes down to decision making. And it really is something that we can choose to build into our day today. Yes, we need to invest for tomorrow, but today will become yesterday very, very quickly. So as we move through our future, the, the chunks of time that we're constantly investing in tomorrow, we need, to be we need to be careful that they don't overtake living for today. So I, I think I would remind my 21-year-old self just to slow down a bit and, and actually invest a little bit in today. No harm in being a little bit philosophical. I can't even say the word, philosophical. 
<laughs> that sums it up, doesn't it? It really does. Tremaine, you've been a complete star. Thank you so much for joining the Leadership Enigma. And I hope you'll come back and join us again in the not too distant future. And we'll explore together what the next normal looks and feels like. You know I will, Adam. Thank you so much for having me. Join us again next week for more essential insights on the Leadership Enigma. We'd love to hear your comments on today's show, as well as suggestions for future topics and guests. Get in touch with your host on LinkedIn or via our website, www.pca-global.com. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks for listening.